This program is brought to you by Grand Valley State University. What is your name? Russell Prince. And when and where were you born? 1922 near Cadillac, Michigan. Okay. And what were your parents' names? Henry and Marie Prince. And what did they do for a living? My mother was a stay-at-home mother. My father worked at Winters in Cranton. Okay. And what was your family like? Did you have any brothers or sisters? Yes, I had three sisters and one brother. Okay. What types of activities were you involved in growing up? Baseball, football, okay. swimming. And were you drafted or enlisted? I enlisted. And why did you enlist? I enlisted for the money and for the recreation of both uh, swimming and basketball. Okay. And how old were you? I was 17. How did your family feel about your enlistment? They didn't like it, but... <laughs> okay. Um, what kinds of things were you required to do, like, before you went to boot camp? You mentioned there was, like, a swimming pool, but did you have anything you, like, had to do? Yeah, we had training once a week. Okay. And during the summer, we was at uh, Camp McCourt, no, Camp Grayling for two weeks every summer. Okay. And what type of, like, extracurricular activities did they have? Like, you mentioned the swimming pool. Up there, it was, there was no uh, extra activities. Okay. It was all training. Okay. Um, and what were your reactions to being sent to boot camp? Well, we went in for a year. It didn't bother us too much. It uh, thought it would be something different. And as I said before, the money was very important because there was no money around. And it was under federal service for one year. At the end of the year, it was extended six months. But I was slated to go home January the 1st, 42, at Pearl Harbor happened in December before I left. So I stayed in. I had to stay in. Right. Mm -hmm. All right. So what did you think training in Louis Louisiana was going to be like? Well, we trained for European warfare. It was uh, training in different areas of Louisiana compared to the territories that would be in uh, Europe. And the hardest part was a six-week maneuver that we had down there. That was the hardest part of the training. What did you do during that six-week maneuver? Well, we had an anti-tank. We were in an anti-tank company. We had our vehicles, and we had 12 guns, which was <coughs> separated four guns to each battalion. So it was very hard, very hard to communicate, keep track of your men and where they were. All right. Um, what was the weather like in comparison to what you were used to? Hot and humid. <laughs> Hot and humid. Um, were there any insect problems or like mosquito problems that you mosquito, had? Mosquito. There was a great problem of, of ticks that we found down in the pine forest that we were training in. That was basically the thing is mosquitoes and ticks. Um, what was your, I guess, favorite part of being in boot camp? If My there was a good part? part or an okay part? 
Beg pardon? An okay part? I don't think there was anything special. <laughs> it was something that we had to go through. And we were paid for it, and uh, the government wanted us to train for the European war. So it was continual hard training. Did you, did you feel prepared going through, like when you were finished training in Louisiana to fight? Yes, I was fully prepared. We went we left Louisiana after Pearl Harbor. We went to Massachusetts in January, and we trained in winter warfare to combine the European theater. We were sent from there to Fort Dix, which is the debarkation point going to Europe. We stayed on the Pullman trains that we were on for six hours and they pulled Pullmans and we, next to us, and we transferred tra uh, trains. And instead of going to Fort Dix, we were headed west through the Pennsylvania Mount, where we landed in California. We didn't know what was going to happen from there on. <laughs> um, was that the first time you found out then that you weren't going to Europe? Yes, when, when we woke up the next morning on the Pullmans and were headed west. And we spent about two weeks in San Francisco and boarded ships to go to some place. We didn't know where we was headed. Um, how would you describe the train ride across the country then? Well, it was very interesting because for most of us, we were young. We, had gone, we were going through countries that we are states that we had never seen and the terrain was altogether different and the people meeting the trains in the station was different and friendly were there any specific stops that you remember because it's maybe something people there had done no i we forget where we were we stopped and i got off the train <coughs> Went to a drugstore and paid for whatever, <coughs> excuse me, paid for whatever I had purchased, and I got changed in silver dollars. I had to run to catch the train with a pocket full of cents, silver dollars. That was one memorable spot. And what was it like while you were waiting in California for your ship to come? Well, we were right in San Francisco, and we got passes every night to go, and it was very different. It was interesting because we had never been that far west, and it was just a different area altogether than what we had, had ever been in. How long did you wait in California? We was there about two weeks. Okay. And then what was the ship ride like over to Australia? The ship ride was very, very interesting. We were on a luxury liner. And they had the uh, carpenters along on the trip. They were putting plywood up, up over all the fixtures in the ship, all the important uh, areas in the dining room and so on, so we wouldn't destroy them. And it was a 21-day ship ride going across. We uh, were supposed to land in northern Australia 
that the Coral Sea battle was in, engaged, and we had a detour, and we went to South Australia. Did anyone get seasick? Not that I know of. Okay. Not that I know of. And then, um, what were your first impressions of Australia when you got there? The first impressions were, it was a strange country. The language was a little different. The people reacted different than what we did to some things. They were more intense on the war because the Japanese were in New Guinea and they thought that that would be the landing point for the Japanese to get to Australia. So they were more concerned about the war than what we were at the time. Okay. And then what type of training did you receive there? Again, we received training with our guns, with our vehicles for anti-tank work, which we was wondering about at the time if it had ever been used, but we still had to train in that because that's what we brought over there as. Um, and how is this training different than what you received in Louisiana? It was not too much different in it. It, uh, it was typical training that you would get in any part of the world, I think, that you were in. Okay. Um, what types of activities did you get to participate in when you weren't doing training? In South Australia, it was, again, there was, it was strictly training. Okay. Uh, there was no activities, there was no, nothing that we could do. We were st on a base camp there, and we did get off for a weekend or something to go to Adelaide, mm -hmm. which was about 30 miles away. But other than that, there was no activities to work on, work with. Okay. Um, was your unit flown or shipped to New Guinea? Shipped. Shipped, okay. Well, we went from Adelaide to Melbourne to Brisbane, and we were at Brisbane about two months at Camp Gable, where we deported, de-embarked de for New Guinea. Um, what were your first impressions of New Guinea? We were wondering what they were fighting there for. It, uh, it was a hot climate. It was wet. There was really nothing there. The place that we landed was Port Moresby. It was supposed to have been a good-sized town for uh, New Guinea, but it was bombed out. There was no no one living there. And we was sent to a coconut grove where we set up and waited our orders. We spent about a week in that area. When we got orders to go on the Kokoda Trail over the mountains. And they said it'd be about a 30-day trip. We had denims, blue denims, one set that we started out with. We carried ammunition and food, basically. And we started out, and we made 16 miles the first 10 days. Then from then on, it got a little harder. We spent 57 days in the mountains, running into the enemy and 
going on. We went over the mountains. The map I had was dated 1916, and this was 1947. So it was a hard trail to find on the 1916 map. Um, did you run into any wild animals or anything on the trail, or? No, we no. did not, that I could see. <laughs> you could see. Um, did you have a lot of problems with mosquitoes here like you did in Louisiana? Was it worse? Well, the mosquitoes were worse, and that's where we, majority of the troops got malaria, and we got it on that trip. It was bitten by a mosquito, uh, mosquito. And we didn't know why we were running fevers, but we found out later on that it was through the mosquitoes. On the Kokoda Trail, did you, could you track the number of days you were on the trail, or have you figured that out later? How we figured days? that out later from the time we left to the time we got up where they were up at, at, up at the front line where they had more data on what we had been doing. Because we lost time, the track of time, practically sometimes where we were. And we were delayed different times by Japanese patrols. It was larger than the group that we had, so we just waited them out at times. We got as far as Wairopi, and we waited there about seven, about a week, because we estimated anywhere from a thousand or over troops, Japanese troops. We had 300 men because we weren't going to attack that. Finally, the Australians come down from another trail with a larger unit. They wiped the Japanese up. We went to Wairopi. That's where I said they had a bridge made out of cables where you walked on a single cable over a ravine. We went over Wairopi and met the Australians who were headed for the Santa Ana track. We joined them, and they branched off. We fought our way up to Santa Ana, and were put on the front lines there. How did you push through not knowing what day it was, and how did you just keep going through the trail and all the hard troubles? Well, we didn't pay too much attention. Our, mate, our greatest concern going over the trail was the Japanese. And as I said, when we left, we carried ammunition and small arms. All of our food ran out in about three days. The Air Force kicked food out of the airplanes without parachutes and to us on the ground. We were supposed to have dropping areas, but they never hit it. We had to look for the food and ammunition. We kept going over the mountains like that, having food dropped. Most of it was, the food was bully beef, or what the Australians called bully beef, it was canned mutton. And that was hard to eat after a few days. But we did find some food and ammunition going across where the food was dropped to us. Um, did you have any contact with like the native people of New Guinea? Yes, we had contact with the natives going over the, the mountain. We would send letters, if you wanted to call that, notes to our parents or some guys' wives, 
with the natives back to Port Moresby. We never know if they got there or not. The closer we got to the Japanese, we were hesitated to use the natives in any way because we didn't know if they were working for the Japanese or if they were friendly to us. So we, start, we stayed clear of natives at that point. And how would you describe the native people? Were they a lot different than what you would have expected? Yes, they were. They, uh, as I said, we didn't see too many of them, so if, but what we've seen, they were a little different than what we expected. Mm -hmm. Some of them could speak a little English, some did not. Did you have any like names that you called them? Or was it just the native people? No, we give them names. <laughs> just any name that we could pick out and they would answer to it. Okay. Um, and then you mentioned that you had contact with the Australians. And what was that like? The Australian forces, um, so they came to relieve you? No, not at Wairope. We met up with the Australians. They were on the opposite side of the river, Kakuma River. Okay. And uh, we, they were battling the Japanese, but they left the main force to, and uh, went in a different direction, and we fought our way up the Santa Nana track to where the front line, American front lines were. What was your impression of the Australian forces? Well, they were more fight in them than what we did because they had more contact with the enemy. And it was a great help to us, the way they fought. We learned a lot because we did not learn too much going across the mountains because we were not that close to the enemy at any one time. We knew they were ahead of us. Um, how would you describe any of the leaders you had, like people above you? Well, the leaders at that time, I would compliment them very good for the equipment we had, for the information we had. We didn't get information. The radios didn't work. They tried to drop information as they kicked the supplies out of the airplanes but some of it we never found. So we were going more or less blind over the track. And day by day is what we found, what we heard, and how we operated on information we could get ourselves. Okay, and what was your impression of MacArthur? I probably shouldn't say this, but it wasn't very good. It's very low. Um, what did you think you were fighting for the whole time in New Guinea? Well, we were under the impression that if we stopped the Japanese in New Guinea from going to Australia, it was basically over, but that was untrue. We found that out later on. But that's what we were sent there for is the thought was that the Japanese were going to go from to Port Moresby where we landed, and that was the jump-off point to hit to Australia. That's what we thought we were there for. Is to um, what kind of weapons did you use? Well, over the mountains, we used small arms, pistols, 
rifles, BAR rifle. That was an automatic rifle that fired quite a few rounds at once. It's a heavy gun. And we had a few Tommy guns. What was the scariest part of um, battles for you? Just All of it. All of it. We, as I said, we reached the front lines. We were put on the front line on the left front, and it was a mixture of troops. And I tank was the only full company. The rest were a mixture. And we were there for two days, and the morning of the 30th, I think, of November, I laid down a barrage, mortars, artillery, and the whole front line was supposed to attack the Japanese. The right, the front, or the center, and the left. We were on the left. We broke through. They were the only companies on the front of the Santa Ana track. Did you feel any emotion when your company was the only one to break through? Like any sense of success? Well, or? no. Uh, we didn't know, and communications in the jungle at that time, there was no radios actually. Communications was speaking to the man next to you, if you lost, <coughs> excuse me, lost contact with him, you were lost yourself. So you had to keep men on both sides of you. We hit the Q9 grass, and we started across that. That's a grass that runs anywhere from two feet to five, six feet tall, and it's sharp hurts, cuts. And we got about a thousand yards into that when the Japanese stopped us. We fought and reached the swamp. We fought our way through the swamp. We got to Sandanana Track again, which was a higher ground. And it was a Japanese bivouac area, but we took that over and we spent the night there, or tried to. It was counterattacked all night. Did you ever get a good night's sleep while fighting? No. It was attacks day and night. We cut off their supplies. And they wanted that road back. Um, in a few hours, could you make yourself fall asleep? Were you so tired or? Well, you did get some sleep. Very little. We were in a perimeter maybe 150 mile yards wide across the road and a couple hundred yards deep. We had that as a perimeter that we were protecting on the roadblock. We reached there and through counterattacks after counterattack, we got low on ammunition and the patrols tried to break through. They couldn't and we didn't lost contact with the main units behind us because our radio got wet and quit working. We had one radio, and they were a heavy radio at the time, very heavy, a man had to carry it on his back. That got wet and we couldn't use it. So we were actually lost, they didn't know where we were. They ran patrols until they finally found out where one section was. And they ran a patrol that broke through with radio food and more ammunition because we were down to nothing. And uh, with the radio, 
we got back in contact with headquarters and the artillery, and we give the artillery points to shoot at, and they finally pinpointed our position so they know where they could use their artillery again against the enemy because they did use it before not knowing where we were. How did you feel, and I guess a general census of the group feel when you knew that you were lost? Well, we was wondering what we were doing up there. We were absolutely lost. We had no idea what was going to happen. We were low on ammunition. The orders went through to use your ammunition the way you wanted to. If the patrol hadn't come through <coughs> when it did, we would have probably had to use that last ammunition. While fighting, did you at any time like lighten your packs, like just drop things like off that you think or thought that you didn't need? Well, when we started over the trail, we carried a shoulder hat, plus a, uh, not a full unit, but part of another uniform. Going over the trail, we got rid of the shoulder hat. We got rid of anything we didn't need, except the food and ammunition. That was basically what we carried. Did you regret leaving anything behind? No. The only thing I regretted is we started out, we were supposed to get them when we had reached the other side of the mountain. We did not have helmets. When we reached the front line, we still did not have helmets. When we got in the lost company or the roadblock, we still did not have helmets. And you probably see the helmets on today's news. Ours were a lot different, but we went in without tin helmets, as we called them. <laughs> um. There was a lot of head wounds due to that, because the Japanese around us had advantage. They knew the territory. They knew they would get up in the trees, <coughs> camouflage themselves. And the majority of our men that were wounded or killed were head injuries, because we didn't have helmets. The Japanese could pick us off whenever they wanted to. They were more or less after leaders all the time. Captain Shirley happened to be the captain in charge of the unit at the roadblock. He sent Captain Keith and Lieutenant Daniels on and out trying to find a way out. They both got killed with a patrol. Captain Shirley got killed. Lieutenant Huggins took over the command. He later got a head injury. And Lieutenant Laponte broke through with a patrol and a radio and food and ammunition. He stayed. He was the oldest uh, officer in grade, so he took charge of the unit. Um, did the officers then wear their insignia on their uniform? Or did they no, they did not. But the Japanese, as I said, knew everything we did. They know that patrol was going to go out the south end of the roadblock. And they 
attacked them. They knew the orders, the, the higher echelon in the, or command in the roadblocks, from officers, captains, lieutenants, sergeants, and corporals. They knew them all, but we did not have insignias because they could tell who was giving the orders. Um, were you afraid of the Japanese snipers? Yes. We was afraid of the Japanese snipers. We was afraid of the Japanese artillery because we had more people wounded and killed with treetop explosions rather than direct. From the shrapnel that would hit the ground. Um, how did you deal with um, fighting while you had malaria? Well, we knew we had to keep going. We couldn't get out of the roadblock. There was absolutely no way to get out. We had to keep going or give up. And we didn't want to do that. So we fought with high temperatures. Um, how did the men in your unit deal with everybody around them dying? Is that something? Well, it was very hard. It was very hard because your friends, your buddies, we had to bury him up there in very shallow graves because he went down too deep. He was in water. It was a very hard thing to do. Um, how would you describe the Japanese style of fighting? The Japanese in general, how would you describe them? Well, they did some foolish things. They attacked at the wrong times. They were from what we understood later on, probably worse off than we were for food and ammunition because we had cut their supplies. There was a large force that we surrounding us said, that, they said at one time it was close to 4,000. I can't believe it that 4,000 would overrun 300. But that was the estimate. They had very little food. They were running low on supplies too. So they wanted that roadblock, and they were trying to get it. Did you ever feel sympathy for the enemy? Or Big pardon? Did you ever feel sympathy for the uh, enemy? No. Um, and you mentioned before malaria. What other types of diseases did people get in the jungle? Dysentery. Uh, different bites that would uh, cause problems. Different uh, insects that was get into your clothing and into your skin. What type of medical aid was available? None. None. Okay, then how did the men deal with not being able to receive aid? Like, did they have anything they did? Well, they had these small first aid kits that we carried, but we ran out of them. We did as much as we could for them, but there was no way that we could get them out of there. There was nothing much we could do except comfort them, if we could. Um, what types of injuries would get men moved from maybe away from the front lines or sent home? Well, in the roadblock, you, could, you did, wasn't relieved. You stayed. There was no way to get back. There's absolutely no way to get back out of it. We were not in the condition to fight our way back. We were just doing our best to hold the spot we had, hoping somebody would get to us. Which, after 22 <coughs> days, 
One time, the Americans asked the Australian commander to take over the roadblock, and he tried and couldn't get there. But after 22 days in roadblock, the Australians broke through and relieved us. And the trail that they used to get through, they guarded it while we were going out. So we could walk out. We had to carry a lot of people out. But so those that could walk, walked. And those that could walk good enough and help the other ones, we managed to get out. We was up there 22, 22 or three days. Um, and what kind of contact did you have with people back home? Did you receive letters while you were there? Or was it no, not no like contact at all. Right. It's not like today we can pick up a cell phone and call. Right. We wrote a letter and had to go back by ship, and that took a month from the time we we wrote it. Until it was delivered in Grand Rapids. It took about a month. Um, so do you know if your family members ever got any of your letters? Or did they, all of them get lost? No, they got some of them. They got some of them? What kinds of things did men write home about usually? Well, being signal, single, it uh, was hard to write. You'd try to write what you, you couldn't say where you were, where you were, what you were doing. Just that you, you still had your health. <laughs> um, were there any signs that the war was coming to an end? None whatsoever, no. Just a big surprise. No. no, as I said, we got out of the front lines. We had a day's rest where we could clean up, couldn't put on clean uniforms. We were not available. So you're wearing a uniform from the end of September through practically New Year's. He said, we were on the front lines at uh, Christmas. We celebrated Christmas on the front line. And at that time, I don't, can't tell you when, because my memory is gone. If you had a temperature of 104, you stayed and fought. If you had a temperature of 105, you went back to the first aid station. And somebody, I don't know who it was, I cannot tell you, got me back to the first aid station. And the next thing I knew, I was on a plane flying back over the mountains. Took us 57 days going across, took us 45 minutes flying back. I got to the hospital. I spent New Year's there, I don't remember it. And I spent about three weeks in the hospital. They couldn't break my temperature. So where was the hospital located? At Port Moresby. And what was it like there during your stay? Well, as I said, I don't remember too much of it. Okay. Until they broke my temperature and they explained that I had, for some reason or other, the longest temperature, <laughs> one with the longest time temperature-wise that they had ever seen. And I was treated pretty good in the hospital until I was fit to take a ship and go back to Austria. Um. So consequently, being in the hospital in New Guinea, my troop was relieved and went back to Australia while I was still in the hospital. Give me more combat time than they had. <laughs> it wasn't combat, but it was in the zone. <laughs> uh, and then what were your feelings about returning home? Well, we didn't even think about it at that time. 
we went, I got back to Australia. I was sent down, I forget the name of the camp, but I was sent there for R&R. &R. That's the first time I ever heard of that. I had two weeks of it. And I was transferred back to the anti-tank at Brisbane at Camp Cable, where again we had trucks and our anti-tank guns, which we trained with again. It was foolish, but we did. Um, what did you do then on R&R? Not much. Just relaxed. There was a little small town. We went in there every night, had a meal. But it, was, it, it wasn't required to do anything except get up in the morning and report. Um, and then once you were back in Australia, while you were waiting to go back home, what types of things did you do? Wait to go back home? I didn't wait to go back home. As I said, we went back into training. We got replacements. We had to train them, which took about three months. Then we went back to Millen Bay in, in New Guinea. We trained them in jungle warfare. Still, we had anti-tank guns and trucks. Nobody knew why, but we had to train them. We left there, and we got aboard ship. And we went out, didn't know where we were going. We made a beach landing, one of the first beach landings, at Sador, New Guinea. It was to cut the Japanese off there. We went ashore. We had very little op opposition. And one of my details was to get ahead of the anti-tank company, find positions for our guns, which I did. And no tanks, no Japanese. But we found the Japanese about 3,000 yards out on the other side of a mountain range, Owen Stanley Range. So our orders were to stay there, and if the Japanese come on our side, we to engage them. So we stayed at Sador. We had a few encounters with the Japanese, but very few. How did you feel when you were fighting with the replacements? Is it different than fighting with the men you've been with for so long? Well, it's not much difference, but you were just a little leery on how they would act under fire and so on. As I said, there were very few times you really had to worry about it at Sador. It was at Sador where I was called in and said I was going to go home. I said, why? Well, you're number one in the regiment. It's the 126 regiment. I said, how could I be number one? Well, I had these extra days in the hospital in combat zone. So I was sent home. I was not sent home. I was sent to Goodenough Island. And Goodenough Island was a mixture of troops. There's nothing really going on there except uh, Preston Rack, R&R uh, again. But it was a long, narrow iron. It was three miles wide and 18 miles long. It was peaceful during the day, but at night, the Japanese Navy tried to sink that island, I thought. <laughs> with the amount of bombs they dropped on it. But I stayed in Goodenough Island for three weeks. I got aboard a ship and went home. Um, how long did it take you to get home? 
going home, it took us a little over two weeks. Going over, it took us 21 days. Because we were in a large con convoy going over, and there was a lot of zigzag, trying to stay away from the Japanese Navy and the submarines, basically. On the way home, we did some zigzagging when we left Goodenough Island, but further out, we went fairly straight, so it took less time going home than we did. What were you looking forward to doing at home? I got home. I had no idea what was going to happen. In California, I got transportation home. I got a 21-day leave. I had seven copies of that leave. Cigarettes were rationed. Gasoline was rationed. Everything was rationed. You had to have something. I went down to the board several times. I transferred the top copy that they stamped, put it on the bottom book. So I got gasoline seven, seven different times. I got my dad plenty of cigarettes. <laughs> but that was not supposed to be done that way. And when you got back to Grand Rapids, who was at the train station to meet you? No one. No one? They didn't know when we was coming. We didn't know when we was coming in. Uh, it was a surprise. They know we, we uh, did send wires from California, but we had no idea when we'd get there. Not with transportation the way it was. And the troop trains weren't. They had to sidetrack for other trains. But we had no idea when we'd get to Grand Rapids. So it was more or less a surprise. And what was the first thing you did once you got home? Well, I met my mother at the door. My father was working. She called him, got him home. And we had a very good, I had a very good homecoming and some very good meals. And how had Grand Rapids changed since you had left? No, it hadn't, that I could see. Did you feel The only thing I could see different was there was a lot of soldiers in town. We couldn't figure that out. And they were here for different there's Navy, there were soldiers. They were stationed at the Pantlin Hotel, which is now Amway Hotel. They were in the weather school there. They had a big weather school for all troops, all services in Grand Rapids, out at the old Kent County Airport. That was the big difference. <laughs> <laughs> Did you feel different at all coming home and seeing the people that? were fighting at the home front as opposed to where you were? No, not too much. I, I knew what it was, sort of uh, what we got from the Australians and some of the news that the fellows that did get letters. I got some. They explained it all and the rationing they were under, how they had to live. It wasn't peaceful. It wasn't luxury at that time. It was very hard. You had at a ration point for everything you bought and meat butter, any, most of the groceries were under ration point. Gasoline was rationed. Shoes were rationed. I don't remember how I bought a pair of shoes, but I bought a pair of shoes. I had no rations net, but I got a pair. I don't, rem I don't remember how I got them. Um, so after you were done with the uh, military, what did you do next? 
Well, when I got home, I didn't get out yet. I was in, my orders were to go to Alabama. Uh, I forget the name of the camp. Camp McCoy, Alabama. And I spent close to a year there as an instructor of the infantry, which I was not very well knowledge about, except what I learned in the jungles. But I had to teach infantry tactics, and all I knew was anti-tank. So it was rather hard for me down there, training all these new inductees and training them, training them right. And we had problems because the officers in these training schools were all over age officers. They were too old to go overseas. So the only thing they could teach was buy the book. And they expected us to. So we got in trouble with the officers quite a bit because we didn't agree with the training that they were getting down in Alabama. That was the hardest part. Mm -hmm. Did you go right into having your own business or did you go to college after that? I went to college. I went to Ferris. Did you use the GI Bill then for that? Yes. Um, when did you get married? 46. <laughs> August of 46. So did you know your future wife then while you were in the military? No. no? I Before I went to Ferris, I had a wait and I got a job at uh, it was on Pearl Street, Addressograph, Moldograph. That was the beginning, forerunners of computers. And I met my wife there. She had worked there for a, long, for a while after graduating from high school. Did you join any um, men's clubs or um, for, vet for veterans? Not at that time, no. I, uh, I did join the American Legion after I got out of college after I started working. And I don't know if it's my nature or what it was, but after the meetings, all they wanted to do was talk about the war. And I didn't like that. So I sort of dropped out. And every time you'd meet them, that's all they wanted to talk about. It was a hard thing to talk about. But I don't know what they're, what they got out of it, what they were trying to rehash. I have no idea. I have never talked about it. Have you gone back to Australia? Yes. Uh, I, in my mind, I had decided I was going to take my wife to Australia for our 50th anniversary. And I started looking at trips long before that, and I found one a year before the anniversary, and we took it. We went back to Australia. From there, we went to New Zealand, which I had never seen and enjoyed. But Australia, to me, was, it had changed. It meant very little. I thought it would be more. But Australia is 
just like going to New York, anything along the East Coast. Australia is all built on the East Coast. You circle around, you hit probably where Alabama is, is Adelaide, Australia. From there, you take a train across the desert to, uh, what is the one? Perth. It's all back, back out, out back, they say. And uh, so I, to me, Australia had changed. Sydney had changed because uh, it had been built up more, same as Grand Rapids had. It is. It was nice to see it, but I, I was didn't get what I thought I would out of it. That's why I enjoyed New Zealand. Um. Would you ever go back to New Guinea? No. I have had friends. There's a uh, fellow in Holland has been back twice. Now, what they get out of it, they went up on the Santa Ana track and they went through it again. I, I just not interested in that. But he's been back twice. In when you got out of the military, what was your final rank? Staff sergeant. I, uh, I had a field appointment as a lieutenant, but I was, I was in a different, no, I was with anti-tank at the time, and I, I was offered a field uh, commission. It's without going to OCS school. And I found out that if I took that commission, I would go to the 41st Division. I would be number way down the bottom of the totem pole as uh, points to get back home. So I refused it. So lucky I did because within six months, I was on my way home. And um, when men receive um, higher rank, how was that usually done? Was it done just on the spot or was it something you had to fill out? Well, field, appoint, field appointments on the front line was done on the spot. Uh, if you was appointed for a, f a field appointment, it would take a week or two. Well, we went back to headquarters, and I don't know what they hashed out, but they did. And they decided if you should have it or not. I think that's about it, all the questions we have. So thank you. Okay, thank you very much for having me. You're welcome. The preceding program is copyrighted by Grand Valley State University. Visit us at gbsu.edu.